0: not know the truth. I don't know the way. I don't know what to think. I don't know what to say. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. I don't know anything. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. And for decades, we've heard about how technology will change the world, right? In the 90s, it truly seemed as though the internet had revolutionary, even utopian potential. We were all told, and we believed, that it would break down the barriers that separate people and information. We were told tech would fix all of our problems. It would solve educational access with free, massively online classes. It would eliminate discrimination because no one could tell who was who online, so we would all compete on the merits. We even thought that tech would be strong enough to topple dictatorships. Remember the Arab Spring? The media literally told us that Twitter was going to be stronger than decades of authoritarianism from Tehran to Cairo. And this was back when Twitter only had 120 characters. Each of those characters was doing a lot of heavy lifting. Well, suffice it to say, if you're living in the same present that I am, none of these dreams has come true. A decade later, the democratic gains of the Arab Spring have largely rolled back and authoritarian governments have proved to be even more adept at harnessing the communicative power of the Internet than democratically minded citizens are. And in America, well, let's just say our utopia of technologically secured equality has not arrived yet. Let's start with a claim that technology would be a boon for education. That sure would be useful right now, right? At a time when students and teachers are unable to gather together in the same place. Why, surely after decades of talk and iteration on the idea of online learning, we should be ready for this moment, right? Well, unfortunately, we are not, because the digital revolution has not come equally to America. According to the Pew Research Center, about 15% of all households with school-aged children lack a high-speed internet connection. You know, it's pretty hard to log into the Zoom with your teacher when you're stuck guessing the neighbor's Wi-Fi password. And the reason for this gap, this digital divide, is that rather than our government exerting its power to make sure the Internet in this country was built fairly, we've allowed corporations to do it for us with very little oversight. And the result is that wealthier areas and populations have been prioritized throughout the history of the Internet, while lower income neighborhoods have had to wait or have never received a connection to broadband Internet at all. Advocates call this digital redlining because just like residential redlining, it's had a disparate racial impact. Black Americans are less likely than white Americans to have a broadband connection at home. A future of internet equality, this is not. Now look, if you listen to the show, you know that being skeptical of the promises of the techno-utopians is not new to me. <laughs> it's a recurring theme on this show. But I don't want you to think that I'm turning into a technophobe either. I'm not here to tell you that Technology is actually bad because the truth is the source of the problem is deeper. The truth is that technology is not produced in a vacuum by abstract thinking techno innovators with their minds up in the cloud. No, technology is produced by a society. And when a society is based in injustice and inequity, our tech ends up reflecting and reproducing that injustice and inequity. So, you know, if you start with a racist police system, we shouldn't be surprised when the algorithms of predictive policing produce racist results. Why wouldn't they? The technology arises from the society. So it follows that if we want to fix our society, we're going to need more than just technological fixes. Giving children in a broken school system new laptops is not going to be as effective as reforming their school system so that students don't receive a poor education just because of what zip code they live in. Or how about addressing the poverty that those students return home to every afternoon? A free iPad doesn't fill up the empty belly that makes it hard for students to focus in class. None of this is to say that technology is useless, but On its own, it'll always be insufficient because social problems need social solutions. Well, to talk about how technology, when improperly used and deployed, ends up reproducing rather than solving social problems, our guest today is Ruha Benjamin. She's a professor at Princeton and the author of Race After Technology, Abolitionist Tools for the New Jim Code. This interview was so much fun. I found her incredibly fascinating and lively to talk to. You're going to love it. Please welcome Ruha Benjamin. Ruha, thank you so much for being here my pleasure thank you
1: so much for inviting me
0: so look uh i grew up with uh in the middle of the tech, of the tech revolution right and with all these ideas of tech techno utopianism uh that the internet was going to solve every social problem uh on the internet no one knows you're a dog the famous new yorker cartoon right uh algorithms will uh bring in a world of equity and fairness across the land. Uh, Over the last decade, there's been a lot of criticism of that point of view. I I think you're part of that criticism. Uh, Could you talk about that? And could you talk about uh, this phrase that you've coined the new gym code? I'm really curious about this.
1: Absolutely. So there are two dominant stories that we often tell about technology. One sort of goes back to that phrase techno um, utopian. And that's the that's the Kool-Aid that Silicon Valley is trying to sell us. And it's about, (laughs) you know, the robots are going to They're gonna, you know, they're going to make things more efficient, they're gonna be more equitable, all the good things. But there's another story that we're also accustomed to hearing, the techno-dystopian story that Hollywood sells us, which is the robots and the technology is gonna slay us, right? So it's going to destroy humanity, take away agency, take all the jobs. And so, although on the surface these seem like opposing stories, like the surface is pretty. Um, different. When you dig down, they share an underlying logic that technology is in the driver's seat. We're either going to be helped mm. or harmed by technology, but the human agency and agents behind the screen get lost from the narrative. And so partly one of the things we have to begin to do is to tell different stories about technology that recoup the, the elements of power and agency that are already there. But part of the issue that I take is that right now, a small sliver of humanity is doing that imaginative work and doing that design work Mm. and that programming work. And so their worldviews, their imagination is being embedded into our physical and digital infrastructures. And so part of what we have to do is explode that phenomenon and really make it much more participatory, democratic, And to do that, we have to think about the existing power relations, which bring us to the new Jim Code, which, you know, will sound kind of familiar for those who, say, read Michelle Alexander's critique Mm -hmm. of mass incarceration, which she terms the new Jim Crow, which itself is a riff off of the way that we've talked about white supremacy and racial segregation in this nation when we term the kind of era of Jim Crow of explicit Legalized segregation and so in the same way that Michelle Alexander is trying to get us to see how mass incarceration continues to perpetuate social and racial control my concept of the new Jim code is trying to get us to think about how technology continues to do that work that it hides so many forms of inequity under the guise of progress under the shiny surfaces of AI systems automated decision systems machine learning, et cetera. And so that code part of it is key that it's coded. It's harder to discern, but hopefully now with the growing language, as you mentioned in the last few years of people and organizations and movements, shining a light on this phenomenon, we can start talking about it and pushing back against it.
0: Oh my gosh. There's so much in there that I want to, I want to dive into. Um, uh, I mean, you had this incredible idea at the beginning about how we talk about technology as uh, neutral and as something that's just coming like a force of nature that we almost have no control over. It's literally the robots. It's literally the algorithms. And you're right that decenters the the people who are making it, um, which is really which is really interesting. Yeah, can you talk more about that?
1: Absolutely. And so I think part of the thing to realize is that so much oppression happens out of solutions to things. <laughs> and mm. so mass incarceration itself was a reform from, from the penal is sort of like just killing people. Now we're going to hold you in cages. So now the, yeah. the, the issue is that how do reforms, how do things that seem to present fixes for things actually reproduce certain dynamics and sort of mm-hmm. social hierarchies or, or forms of oppression. And so in that way, innovation goes hand in hand with inequity and oppression. So often we associate like techno- technological innovation with social progress. Like that's part of yeah. the Kool-Aid is to get us to believe that those two things are the same. When in fact, innovation has long been gone hand in hand with um, all, all manner of oppression. And so I often think about like, the first person who put up a whites only sign in their in their store that was an innovation right yeah the and then later person. they put
0: up later they put up a neon sign exactly. and they innovated <laughs>
1: exactly or like the first person who said you know what you know what's a good idea let me let me create a a colored water fountain like that was a bright <laughs> idea and like whoever did that like you know it caught on and so The things in hindsight that we think of as so like backwards and regressive at the time, they were innovative, which should get us thinking about what now are we so enamored with, Uh, you know, that we think, oh, this is the next bright thing. And so that's why often when I when I'm when I'm talking with folks, I refer to that Better Off Ted episode. It's titled Racial Sensitivity. I love that
0: show. This is a great pull. That show was canceled (laughs) before its time. I was was a big fan.
1: It was too subversive, Adam. (laughs) So there's this three minute genius clip in which the the company decides to install um, sensors all over the building but the sensors don't detect a darker skin. And so none of the black employees can open the doors. They can't use the elevator. They can't um, use the water fountains. Yeah. But that's what happens is they, you know, when they bring it to the CEO, the response is, oh, oh, don't worry, we'll, we'll fix this. We'll put a manual water fountain for the darker skin employees <laughs> next to the one with sensors, which to me is just a really great illustration of how you know, you create all of these kind of like splashy things to make life easier. And yeah. then if it doesn't work for some people, we retreat back to this really iconic, you know, example of the manual water fountain and all over the water fountain, it says, this is for black employees because they can't yeah. use anything else. And so again, getting us to think about our assumptions about what innovation is and what it does.
0: Well, What this connects to for me is I've done work in the past on, for instance, we did an episode of my TV show called Adam Ruins the Internet, and we opened that with a critique of techno-pessimists, right, people who say, oh, no, this new technology is destroying our minds, right? Oh, our cell phones. We're all addicted to our cell phones. It's destroying human society. Yeah. And we made the argument, hey, same as it ever was, right? This is what people have said about every form of technology. People said about books, oh, that they're a destructive new technology that will destroy the, the younger generations. Literally, they did. People said that about paperback books and train travel and, and telegraphs, et cetera, right? Yeah. And we were saying, no, you know, technological innovation has always been with us, and there's always been people saying the sky is falling. Yeah. Um, But this is the argument that you're making is the same argument, just the obverse that it's that, hey, uh, technology also doesn't fundamentally change our society the way we think it does. If we've got a built in power structure where some people hold power and some people don't, then likely the technologies that that society creates are going to just keep. Reifying, reinforcing that power structure—is that does that track for you? That definitely does. And
1: the, to the first part of your um, your comment, I was thinking about that meme that shows like maybe it's like the 1950s, um, like a train scene, uh, like a New York City train scene, and all the guys have they're holding up their newspapers and not talking to each other, and it's like, yeah. see, this is like people never talk to each other. It's not the phones yeah. that the phones that did it, but certainly yeah. this idea that. It's not the technology that's inaugurating these forms of sort of antisocial interact, you know, antisocial behavior or inequity. It's the larger ecosystem. It's the social inputs that actually continue one era after the other to, to continue to produce the same predictable outcomes. And so rather than just say, you know, get rid of all the technology let's look at ourselves like really let's let's l- use this black mirror as as it were you know to shine a light on what we take for granted about our social order and think about addressing the root issues rather than just trying to throw the technology out
0: yeah when we see those stories about like you said from that better off ted episode which was that was like 2009 or something that was very ahead of its time because it, it was like five years later we started having actual stories like that come out Absolutely. all the time prescient, uh, prescient. about yeah about like this or that facial rec- t- racial fa- fa- facial <laughs> recognition technology yeah. not uh recognizing people of certain races etc um we see those stories and we say wow bad technology but that's not really a story about the technology. That's a story about our society and th- which built the technology.
1: Absolutely, there's a, b- a wonderful line there where the one of the bosses said, "This is not racism. It's not racism because we're not targeting black people. We're just ignoring them." And for and <laughs> and, and, and for me, that's just a perfect like just expression of so yeah. much kind of corporate diversity culture and and all of the things that has less to do with those sensors and the technology, but really how people how so much indifference continues to perpetuate inequality. It's not the big, bad boogeyman behind the screen. Like, let me get these people. It's like, I don't give a damn. (laughs) I don't really care about them. That like allows things that the wheels to keep turning.
0: Well, and so let's talk about that because that is literally the way you put that. And that's a great line is that is I don't see color like made manifest, right? It's like I literally don't see it. My tech, not the the, uh, algorithm I designed cannot see it. Um, But the the thing about I don't see color are these sort of neutral uh, ways of doing it is that it seems a lot less pernicious than uh, the racism or the the racist structures that we were taught about exactly. that I was taught about in sixth grade, right? Exactly. Um, so yeah, we uh, have the
1: image of like you know the police officers sicking the dogs on the black youth and the water fountains. Yeah. Like really, our imagination of what counts as racism is like the it, it requires the white hoods, it requires the snarly like white men who are out to get you when the vast majority of racist systems just rely on us clocking in and out, like just doing our job, like put your head Mm -hmm. down and just follow the rules. And so there was a really great study last year this time that came out that was looking at healthcare algorithms and this widely used healthcare algorithm that basically was like a digital triaging system like you you come in as a patient and it'll tell the healthcare provider whether you're high risk or low risk and so if you're high risk they use this this particular algorithm to get you more resources to to prevent whatever like bad things are are predicted to happen to you based on Um, um, sort of past data of people like you. And so what the researchers who studied this algorithm found is that it was flagging white patients at a much higher rate to receive these coveted resources, like more time with your doctor, more like uh, services outside of the hospital It was basically designed to help people stay out of the hospital and that black patients who were sicker were not getting flagged for these services. And so Hmm. this particular algorithm in many ways was carrying out the the work of a whites only sign at a hospital. Like you can't, you're not doing it, but it was through this neutral system. Right. And so when the, when the researchers opened it up to figure out like, what's happening here, why is this, is it like out to get these black patients? This system was in fact, race neutral. There was no, it wasn't keeping track of race at all. Instead it was using a proxy variable. It was using healthcare costs. Like how much We have spent on particular patients. That was used as a proxy to say, if we've spent more on you, that means that you're higher risk, like you're more Mm. likely to get sick. But we have a system in which people who need care can't get to the hospital or don't have insurance. So lots of sick people, they're not getting anything spent on them, which makes the system Uh. think, oh, you know what? You're fine. You're low risk. And so precisely by using cost as a proxy for the healthcare need, the system was perpetuating this past inequality and projecting it into the future under the guise of like a neutral system. And so millions of black patients for years were not getting these, these coveted services because the healthcare professionals were relying on this system called Optum. Um, And so this is just one of many examples where really we see that race neutrality, or as you say, colorblindness can be deadly because we're ignoring The past, right? The data that's being used to train a system—it's it has all of these patterns of of both institutional and interpersonal discrimination because both are at work in our healthcare system, like individuals and and other ways in the policy and the insurance is structured. But it was using that as if it was just a a straightforward reflection of reality and teaching this algorithm make more decisions like this. (laughs) And, And so this is what we get when we ignore history. or we ignore social inequality in the building of technical systems
0: and the people building that algorithm probably had no idea what they were doing they were like hey we're just making a little cost algorithm here probably if you told them they'd be like no that's exactly a racist algorithm that's that's
1: almost a direct quote from after this after this (laughs) study came out that's like a direct quote from like you know a million articles where they were like we didn't try to do this. This is not, this is not what we meant to do. But again, we go back to better off Ted indifference is really one of the main drivers of, of racism. And so hiding behind the kind of, I'm not racist, but you know, whatever comes next is probably
0: going to to be (laughs) racist. Yeah. Are there other examples of this that that stand out to you?
1: In almost every, every significant area of our lives where important decisions are being made, those who, um, the human beings, you know, the gatekeepers are outsourcing those decisions and consulting technical systems as if they're Mm. neutral. In In our penal system, it's everywhere, from every single stage, from who gets policed in the first place, who's paroled, who's you know, every single stage we have um, a, a risk assessment tools that are being employed that are deeply racially biased, and the studies are kind of starting to pile up that have been auditing these. In fact, now during the pandemic, there was um, a system called Pattern that was being used to decide who would be released because you know our, our prisons are overcrowded, and so COVID's yeah. running around. So they're like, okay, we got to figure out who to let out so that we can sort of um, you know deal with the overcrowding, and so. Some places use this pattern um, assessment again to, d- to decide risk, like who's low risk or high risk. Um, and then the people who were deemed um, low risk were the vast majority were um, white in um, people who were in white men who were in, inmates, people who were homeless were high risk, um, black men were high risk, people with mental illness were so all of the most marginal in this already marginal and oppressed population. Um, were deemed high risk and so were kept in, you know, caged where others were released. And it, the difference was something like 30 plus percent of white men were deemed uh, eligible for early release versus like six or seven percent of, of black men. Wow. And so this is, and so pattern, this was during the pandemic, but those kinds of risk assessment tools are being used up and down the penal system and our education system, there are examples when it comes to getting like a home loan or other kinds of like loans. And so any area of our lives that you can think of where people are making decisions about a lot of people at once, this kind of new Jim code discrimination is happening.
0: Yeah. Just mentioning housing, like uh, it, there seems to be a connection back here, like to redlining, for example, which I've talked about, uh you know extensively on our show and on this podcast before um but cuz that was like for me really really learning about uh the history of it and yeah. uh, and and the massive effect it had on american society that that's to me the most vivid example of how You know, these uh, how how the structure of our society can be set up in a racist way that you can end up perpetuating without even knowing it today. Like those the, the restrictive covenants that they literally had in the suburbs in like Levittown, you know, only Caucasians apply, you know, will be given these mortgages. Of course, that was overt racism. But then, hey, 40 years later. Well, now, if you're just continuing to operate on, hey, what is the home values of the neighborhood? What is is the neighborhood, quote, high crime or not, you know, et cetera. Uh, Then you end up perpetuating that original sin. Right. Exactly. uh, And all those people, they
1: just had to go to, the, you know, go do their little office job at the bank, like fill out the little forms. I love to show people like the actual like bureaucratic forms that go into that to sort of demystify it because it's not like a big bad banker staying standing in the front and be like no get out of here we don't want you it's like like a little bureaucrat sitting there and filling out okay this many um this many italians live in the neighborhood this many negroes this many um, people who are getting welfare calculate calculate sorry you can't get a home loan to go in Mm -hmm. here so it's like for me the the forms of harm that we associate with kind of like these scary boogeyman of the past were often carried out by people, again, just putting their head down and doing their job. Um, in my na- my grandma's neighborhood in Los Angeles, Leimert Park, I dug up this flyer from like the 1940s when that neighborhood was getting developed and the housing developers were trying to entice white families to move there. And they mm. put up these flyers that basically said, come, come live here. Uh, we have beneficial restrictions. Your investment will be secured. And of course, beneficial restrictions was a reference to racially restrictive covenants. So they were basically telling them, you buy your house here, you have these covenants that ensure that it will stay white, the neighborhood will stay white, and your Mm -hmm. investment will be secured. Now, I was following that kind of rabbit hole, and I learned about a Black family that was trying to move into the the neighborhood, the Wilsons. And um, when they did, the Homeowners Association rallied around and the, the There was a white family that wanted to sell their house to the Wilsons and the homeowners association sued that white family and like, no, wow. you're, you're going to mess up the neighborhood. And it's so interesting when you read like the interview of the main plaintiff from the homeowners association, he says, I, I'm not motivated by any racial animus. This is strictly an economic, you know issue. And so even in the 1940s, he's like, yeah, I'm not racist, but this black family is not moving into this neighborhood for
0: X, Y, right.
1: and Z. And so like that rhetoric that we are familiar with now, it's been with us for a while. People don't want to own like what the, the, the ill feeling, but they, the economic motivation, the f- idea that racism is productive. It doesn't just harm people. Yeah. It actually garners wealth and status and all the good things of life to those who are perpetuating it. And so even this guy back in the forties was like, you know what? I don't care. I don't give a damn about the Wilsons, but you're not going to mess up my, my, you know, my property investment. Last thing I'll say about this story of the Lemert park is that there was a reverend and a rabbi who went door to door knocking on people's, um, you know, doors and talking to all the neighbors and was like, this is terrible. We shouldn't be suing this family. We should let the Wilsons move in. And so they went and kind of did this like labor of trying to like impress upon the the folks in their neighborhood that this adherence to white supremacy, however, sort of um, hidden behind the the language, the legalese of this lawsuit was not like the values that we should be upholding. And ultimately through their efforts and others, the, the homeowners association dropped the suit the Wilsons moved in, there was like a party for them. And so this is just one okay. example, like we don't always have to wait for the laws to change to start to like force changes in our relations and in our own backyards. And to me, the example of this rabbi and reverend who were like not having it, were like, we're not waiting for the federal government, but our neighborhood is not gonna do this. And so that's really, I think, a call to action for all of us.
0: I do, it does raise the question for me though, that we were talking earlier in this conversation about, and by the way, that's an incredible story. Thank you for sharing it. I'm glad it had a, a, a somewhat happy ending. Uh, but but we were drawing this contrast between the the quote neutral algorithms today and the sicking the dogs on the on the folks uh, mm-hmm. on black folks, you know, in, in the old days. But what you're describing is a is a story that doesn't sound too dissimilar to right now. I mean, we still have homeowners associations. Yes. And there are homeowners associations that still use cloaked legalism yes. and economic arguments to keep out black people. And guess what? We still have cops physically attacking exactly. and brutalizing black people. So, exactly. I so mean, I love that. Are you things really out. so different? <laughs> yep. Or is it same as it ever was? Still? Yeah.
1: To me, I think that 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 insight is like the key because it's not there hasn't been this transition from an old-timey racism to this newfangled coded racism so one of the things that i'm really trying to trace in race after technology is the continuity the fact that now computer codes are doing this work of coding but legal codes have long been doing this there's all kinds of ways in which um, this coding of racism this embedding it into our systems Other tools have been used before we've had fancy algorithms. And so that's, again, the kind of point we started with, is it's not simply the technology that's inaugurating new forms of racism. It's providing a new kind of like twist on something Mm. that's been with us. And so one of the things I do is really show exactly how legal codes have done this. But even if we go to something a little less tangible, like I think about the way that we culturally code our names. I start the book talking about people's first names and how we often use that as a proxy for other qualities about people. And it's often mm. used as a pretext to open doors and shut doors for people. And so there's a great audit study from about 2002 or three in which two economists from the University of Chicago sent out thousands of resumes to employers in Boston and and Chicago. And um, what they did was they just changed the first names. They changed like some of the resumes had names like Emily and Greg, some like Lakeisha and Jamal. And all the qualifications were the same, the number of years of education, all the things. And they waited to see who the employers would call back. Mm-hmm. And of course, we wouldn't be surprised that those white sounding applicants, the names the white sounding applicants received many more callbacks and, and um, calls of interest. And the economists calculated this to mean, to be equal to um, the assumption that those white applicants had eight additional years of experience, work experience wow. that they didn't actually have. And so they received 50% more callbacks and so this is a way in which our names code certain assumptions about us for good or bad and people use them all the time to actually pro- like provide opportunities for people. Now, someone hearing that the results of that study might think, well man, humans are crap. Like we why we have this implicit bias, we're discriminating. So shouldn't we let computers make the decisions about employment? Uh-huh. You know, like that's the shift. It's like okay, acknowledging our bias and then saying, okay, let's let this AI powered system in which I sit here in front of this screen and, and it kind of tallies all of these data points. And then what these firms that are selling this do is they say, now we'll compare job seeker scores to those of existing top performing employees in our company in order to decide who to flag as a desirable hire or who to reject. And so again, the assumption is that this system, which is, presumably created by human beings and had to be taught how to judge applicants, is somehow going to be more neutral. And in fact, that doesn't turn out to be the case. Like if you in your own company have been hiring mostly men or mostly white guys for the last 50 years, and that's your base, that's your standard for who a good employee is. And now you're judging everyone else according to that, however you code that in terms of body language and posture and accent and all the things that the AI system's keeping track of, you're likely going to get more of the same. And the danger is is that people actually think that that system is more neutral than, say, a a person looking through resumes and deciding, I don't want Jamal working here, you know? (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, a, a simple way to put it is like, you know, AIs. I'm I, I'm not an AI expert, but I've played around with some AIs. I've talked to some AI experts on the show. You train them on data, right? Like that, a very very common form of AI now is a neural network. It's sort of a, this general learning machine. You give it a whole bunch of data. It sees patterns in the data without you even knowing how it's quite doing it, right? Yes. And then it's able to tell the difference between A and B. Well, if you're training the the system. On a racist society, right? You're you're saying let's let's train it on every employee in America and, you know, what how much money they make and how many skills they have, et cetera. Well. Of course, it's going to you're going to end up with an A.I. that says, oh, yeah, white people are more qualified than black people, because in the system I currently have, those are all the lawyers and, uh, you know, paralegals and accountants. Right. Exactly. Um, so and the smarter so you, it
1: gets, the more racist and sexist it becomes like well, yeah, if, the, if we're judging intelligence by how closely it mirrors human decision making. So yeah. like this intelligence and in quote is actually like the most racist and sexist version of, of human, <laughs> you know, thinking. And so, in fact, a couple of years ago, Amazon's own hiring algorithm was weeding out women precisely because that their workforce <laughs> is predominantly male. So it was like seeing these resumes with like, you know, Laura or Tanisha. And it was like, oh, this company doesn't want this, like chucked it out. But then once they got rid of like gendered names, it got smarter and it started looking, okay, this applicant was on the women's chess club. Throw that out. This applicant went to Bryn Mawr. Throw that out. And so, and then it started looking at how <laughs> wow. applicants talk about their work, like what kind of adjectives people use, and and we know through other sort of so, so social psychological research that. That, you know, that has a gendered dimension to it, the kind of language we use to describe our work. So it got even more intelligent. It was like, OK, like throw those people out. And so eventually Amazon had to recall this whole thing. So if Amazon can't get it right, then we all should be pretty wary about like outsourcing these really important decisions yeah. to Systems we assume are neutral.
0: Well, I want to ask you about what we could be doing otherwise, but we've got to take a really quick break. We'll be right back with more Ruha Benjamin. Okay, we're back with Ruha Benjamin. I-, I want to talk about what we could do differently. I, I, you're a science fiction fan, aren't you? I, am. Uh, I I know that you use science fiction in your work. Yeah. Um, I'm teaching
1: a class this fall called black mirror race, uh, technology and justice. <laughs>
0: oh, that sounds great. I yeah. wish I could take that class. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun.
0: Well, what is, what, what is, uh, why the focus on science fiction and, yeah. and, and what do you, what does it change? Yeah, but, I'm sorry. Let me take that back. Let, yeah. let me let me edit that question. Mm-hmm. Um, Well, why the focus on science fiction? And why is it important? The question of who gets to imagine the mm-hmm. future that we're going to have that that question of imagination. I'm curious about. Yeah. As we think our way towards a solution.
1: Yeah, I should say first, you know, my earlier work before I got to all this stuff around AI and algorithms was in the life sciences. And and so my first book was about stem cell research and regenerative medicine. So I was hanging out with all of these really um fantastic scientists that were doing cutting edge work growing things like heart cells in a petri dish in a lab so that say if your relative needed a heart transplant rather than having a donor the idea the the hope is that one day we can reverse engineer your their own cells and grow them a heart from their own their own cells so that their cool. body doesn't reject it right cool like you know <laughs> it's like you know out of this world and so like hanging around people that are doing this just like as their day job and then, and for anyone else seems like this is like, this is science fiction. But I realize in talking to them, how many people um, were initially like the, their interest in science and technology was sparked by seeing like a Star Trek episode or some wild, like re- reading some interesting thing in a book. And so like from a young age, like those seeds are planted and then they eventually you know, follow their pursuits, and then some, a small slice of those people actually get the opportunity, the, the scholarships, the education, you know, the mentors, the institutional affiliations, to be able to take that early, uh, you know, those ideas that sort of sparked when they were young and actually get to materialize it in an actual lab, where now they're growing actual heart cells or developing a scanner, like they had on Star Trek to say, okay, let me figure out what's wrong with you. And so Mm -hmm. for me, it started with realizing how important imagination is to the the things that end up becoming science and technology for the individuals. And, And similarly for me, but also like there was a real lopsided investment in imagination. Like I would be one of the few social scientists in these spaces and I would be like, okay, that's great. That's nice. We'll be able to grow people's organs now, what about the fact that so many millions of people can't even get like the basic healthcare? Like now we're in the middle of a pandemic, like right. can't even get a test for this deadly, you know, this deadly virus. Like how do we match up this great imaginative and actual economic investment in these cutting edge things with a lack of investment in some basic like social provisions and social safety nets and healthcare? And oftentimes my questions around that, those would be cast as like far-fetched. Like, oh, we Mm. can't ever insure everyone. Oh, there will always be people who will have to die for the common good. Like, you know, like (laughs) my basic questions about like public health or the common good, like that was seen as the thing that was out of this world, like we'll never be able to do. So for me, it's like, how, how can we have so much optimism around sort of biological regeneration or ai and so little imagination and so little investment yeah. in our social ills and our social well-being right and so it's that's what animates me is like okay right now our collective imagination is being not mon- mon- monopolized by the people who are able to do all this fancy shit whereas yeah. people who just want like to be able to take their kid to the er when they crack their chin open play riding their bike They're the ones who have to sit there and, like, hope that thing closes up because they can't afford to get there.
0: Well, that's what. Oh, my gosh. You're clarifying so much about the techno utopian worldview to me, because what it is, is these are folks who say that our social problems are inherently unaddressable. Right. They say, ah racism, inequality, It'll like all these things there, you, you, know? you you can't fix those are too thorny. Like, uh-huh. Oh, like, Oh, who's going to, what we need to do are technological fixes that are going to skip right over them. Right. That'll, yeah. that'll, that's the easy thing to do. That's the thing I can address. It's Elon Musk sitting oh. in traffic. We beat up on him all the time on oh. this show, but, yeah. but I, I really do think this is not being gratuitous. I, I really yeah. think this is a great example. He's sitting in traffic going, I hate being in traffic. I know I'll build a tunnel so that rich people like me can skip the traffic and go right underneath right now. First of all, I don't know why the motherfucker doesn't just buy a helicopter like he's rich enough to get a helicopter. Why is he in traffic to begin with? This problem has already been solved for rich people, dude. Jeff Bezos is just in a helicopter. He's not trying to build tunnels all over the place. Um, But. Why can't Elon Musk, who is like this, you know, he's made his reputation as being this visionary, imaginative guy, this guy who's like, you know, thinking about the future of humanity. Let's go to Mars. Let's, you know, have a I da 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 da. da. Why can't he imagine a world with no traffic? He sees traffic as being an unsolvable social. ah. How could you get rid of it? I don't know. There's too many people around, whatever. Why can't he imagine? Why can't he ask the question? Well, what if we how could we get to a world with no traffic, which would be a world with, I think, and hope public transportation, more walkable cities and like, you know, less uh, people who have to drive an hour to get to work because they could only afford to live out in the suburbs. So more affordable cities, all these sorts of questions. Um, But that whole sphere of questions, which also involve questions of race and inequality, are put in the bucket of unsolvable by our technological, because they don't have, they can't imagine solutions.
1: No, and they're not, they're not, um, they don't have any reason to. And so I love that you use that example, because the epigraph for my first book, People Science, was from someone I interviewed. And she said, before we figure out a way to get to the moon, can we just make sure everyone on my block can get to work? (laughs) That was (laughs) was her position. So so perfect. But again, you know, it is really like this lopsided investment. And um, part of what we have to do is really push back on the inevitability of technology solving all of our all of our problems. I was recently talking to a group of students. They had in, they had organized this conference on innovation over here at Princeton, and one of the other speakers was the guy behind um, the Singularity University. And so he was like beaming in through Zoom, and he gave a talk. And <laughs> he was ending his talk, and he, he and he was right before me. And he so he said he's basically telling this auditorium full of students like painting a picture, very much like an Elon Musk type picture of the future. This is what's happening. You either get on board or you get out of the way. You're irrelevant. You either are signing onto this and figure out a way how to navigate. And so it was like the the the, the inevitability of the future that he is invested in. And so I had the first thing that I said when I got up there was like, "He's wrong. <laughs> um, he's wrong. No, you do have a choice. That is not inevitable because that's part of the the sort of anti democratic um, uh, underpinnings of that whole thing. Is that they really don't want to hear from anyone else. Like this is the vision of what the, the, the collective good is. And anyone else who raises questions about it, critiques it, is painted as anti-technology or anti-science. And so the last thing I'll say about that is that even the, the sort of phrase that we use and we call people Luddites, it misrecognizes mm-hmm. who the Luddites actually were. They were not oh, against were technology. They were against the social costs of technology. They were against the fact that the inclusion of this technology into you know, industry was going to push down the wages, was going to have all of these social costs. So they weren't against the machine itself. They were against the way that the machine was actually going to reproduce power and inequality. And so even that kind of you know, insult that we cast around, oh, you're just a Luddite. It actually you you might actually be more um, inclined to say, yeah, maybe I am because it's not being against something. It's saying we need to talk about the social costs of these technologies and do better.
0: Are there technologies, though, uh, just because we've been we've been shitting on technology this whole conversation. (laughs) Yeah. Are, Are there technologies that fundamentally do shift the balance a little bit? I think about how, you know, our new communications technology have allowed people who were, you know, we took down all the media gatekeepers, right? And now people who uh, were, you know, were formerly marginalized are able to be loud, spread their message, connect. Now also, I think one of the side effects is a lot of people who were kept out of media who we don't like, like you know, like the fucking uh, yeah. like oh, like overt like white nationalists yes. right? didn't used yeah. to have a platform and now they do as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's a give and a take. But but is there are there any technolo- yeah. technological advancements in your view that that did make a positive change yeah. in this, and, in this yeah. sphere?
1: There's quite a few, and the way that I would characterize them is that it's not even simply that the technology is the thing that's so radical or subversive or liberatory, but it's like before you even get to designing a particular technology you have to identify who is this for? What is, it for, what is it for, how is it actually going to intervene in business as usual. And the subversiveness or the power of a given technology to do that starts well before you start coding, well before you start designing a programming. Mm. And so it has to do with the question that we pose that technology is supposed to answer. Because a vast majority of, especially when we're talking about these risk assessments and automated decision systems, they cast their view on the most vulnerable populations and they try to predict, for example, the riskiness of of a youth to, you know, get in trouble at school or someone to be on parole or someone to not follow their their meds or something. So it's looking at individuals who are already vulnerable. The the technologies that I find to be so um, important actually flip the script and point the direction of the technology or the data collection and prediction to those who wield power, to those who are monopolizing and producing mm. risk for the vast majority. So, for example, there's a great project called the Anti Eviction Mapping Project. So, going back, I think you've had Matt Desmond on on yeah. your show. And so, rather than try to use, you have a, some kind of you know risk assessment that tells a landlord, okay, is this renter going to default on their loan? It puts the tool in the hands of renters and people who are have experiencing housing insecurity. To actually look and to judge real estate owners and landlords to tell them how these people are treating their tenants and then to be able to mobilize and and rally people together in terms of housing justice movement. So, again, the technology doesn't save people in that case, it gives them the tools and the data to be able to look at where, how the trouble is being produced and then to to move in that direction. A a second example along those lines that's more of a parody example, but I like it because it, it really shows the absurdity of so many of our um, tools that are used by policing and, and our carceral system is called the um, white-collar early warning system. So it's like <laughs> this, this system where it flags all of the places and cities where white-collar crimes are happening. And it has an app that shows <laughs> you the image of a, of a prospective criminal. And the when they designed the algorithm that produces that facial recognition system, They use the profile photos of 7,000 corporate executives on LinkedIn. And so naturally, (laughs) the face of a criminal is white and male. And so here you have this data mapping, you have this facial recognition system, and it's throwing in our face the fact that this exact set of crimes and populations always go under the radar. They always go through the tunnel to go back to your email. And they never are the subject of this, this kind of, you know, surveillance.
0: Yeah, oh my, I want that version of the citizen app, you know? Rather than. Rather than the citizen app that says, oh, there was a, an altercation with a knife at, you know, a couple blocks away. And you're like, ah, well, I'm not there. So who, like, oh, but I'm scared now for no reason. Exactly. I want the citizen app that's like, yeah, someone's embezzling downtown. Yes, beware there's that a, banker. <laughs> there's, a, there's a landlord illegally converting an apartment into an Airbnb. <laughs>
1: exactly. Like, like, let's create the techno dystopia for those in power. Like, let's think yeah. about technology if we're going to use it. And that way, it, and in both of those cases and many others, it really starts well before you start designing to think about how we, what we think of as the problem that technology yeah. is supposed to solve. And too often, the problem is the racialized community or, you know, the, the same old kind of problem spaces. And so technology needs to subvert that. And we have some examples of that coming up down the pike.
0: Well, what this makes me think, and going back to your point about the Luddites, is that, you know, your argument isn't anti-technology. It's it's anti-techno-utopianism. It's it's anti-these sort of views that some have about technology, that technology is neutral and it's going to solve our problems. Um, but I think you'd argue technology is a is a tool. What we need to solve are our social issues. Exactly. And we can use technology as a tool to do that if we're if we're mindful of it.
1: Absolutely. As long as we keep technology in its place, as long as we don't think that technology is going to save us as like one half of that narrative. And so really like putting technology in its place, not as the kind of magical fix, but as a tool, but also recognizing that um, it doesn't mean that any given tool is neutral, because if the point of that tool is to, calculate the risk of, you know, someone who's been locked up, you know, in an unjust system, then it doesn't matter who's holding it. If it was designed to calculate the risk of those individuals, it's oppressive. And so it has to also do with rethinking that design process so we can produce tools that can be used in ways that empower communities rather than oppress them.
0: What is the uh, Ida B. Wells Just Data Lab? Would you tell me about that?
1: Sure. So it's here at Princeton um, in the African-American Studies Department. And it's, a, it's an umbrella initiative that connects students, researchers, artists, and community activists in order to design just tools. And so over cool. the course of the summer, for example, I had 10 teams of students working from everything. There was a housing team and a work team and a policing team. And each of the 10 teams collaborated with a community organization to build some kind of um, data justice tool that could be used in the context of advocating for some anti-racist initiative in the context of COVID. And so it's a space to create those connections where academics aren't seen as having all the answers. Like we need to also humble ourselves and learn from people who are working in communities about what's actually needed. I think this goes for technologists too. I think too often the Kool-Aid of Silicon Valley is assuming that they can come up with the the interventions um, without talking to the people who all of these things are supposed to help, right? And so so part of it is really creating an environment that that can happen. And so for those who are interested, we've posted all of the the tools from the summer at the just lab.com backslash tools. And you can take a look at what's, what's um, been developed over the last few months.
0: It's. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I I, I, I uh, uh, need to edit that moment now. I apologize. No, no, worries. um, uh, <clears throat> I'm going take a sip of water. Um, I'll wait for you to finish and then I'll get back into it. Uh, that sounds so cool. I want to ask, what do you advise for folks listening, right? When when they're, uh, you know, engaging with technology, mm-hmm. right? What questions can they be asking about it to mm-hmm. to help them improve their relationship with it and, and sort of see these systems a little better?
1: Yeah, I think I think what I have found in the last few years is many more people who aren't necessarily working in the tech sector have become rightly skeptical um, about the promises that were so commonly Mm -hmm. sort of um, marketed to us for the last, you know, 20 years or so. And so I find like the average person I talk to is already thinking critically and engaging these things and basically not taking things at face value, like always with like, okay, what's really happening. And so I think when it comes to the data that's collected, um, behind the screens behind the scenes in terms of all of the things that we use for free as the saying goes if it's free then you are the product yeah. <laughs> your your data is the is the the product and then so i think um you know i remember a few weeks ago um zoom made this announcement where they said that people who use their service for free zoom had the prerogative to sell our, you know, our, all of our communication and data to law enforcement. And so, and, but people who paid, they, their data would be protected. And so for a week there, my lab decided we're not using Zoom. We're going to find another platform. But the outrage, the public outrage was so like loud and vigorous that within a week, Zoom reversed course and said, okay, 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 we won't, we won't sell. And so that's an example of us collectively voicing what we want out of these things and not sort of assuming that we just have to submit, submit, submit when we press those forms. Like if we think that something is, you know, is not right when it comes to, you know, what my colleague Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism, for example, we need to speak up. This is true, say for parents right now, the more that classes have gone online, remote learning, learning, learning management platforms, like Find out what the school that your kid goes to, what they're doing, what what their policy is, their data policy is about all of that time that your your kids are on, you know, whatever the learning management platform is. And I will say that young people in particular are are becoming more savvy around this. I know about a, a year or two ago, there was a students in Brooklyn staged a walkout out of their school, not around the data issue, but because they were spending all their time on this learning management platform and saw their teachers like 20 minutes a week. (laughs) And so they were like, this is not education. (laughs) And so we're not, we're, we're, we're not doing this. We're boycotting. And so that's another example. But in both of those examples, you see it's working together. It's like, it's not simply thinking about ourselves as individual consumers, like, okay, I'm not going to buy this product. I'm going to go here. That's fine. Like people should do that. But the more powerful change happens when we team up, when we organize yeah. like those students in Brooklyn or like the public outrage around zoom and so i think more and more we really need to stop thinking of ourselves as users because as i say in race mm. after technology users get used <laughs> and so we really <laughs> need to think about our relationship to technology as you know really as stewards as citizens thinking about holding accountable what values do we want to be embedded in these structures because if we say and do nothing it's really going to be the same old kind of corporate surveillance values that you know that we see as the kind of dominant ethos of um, surveillance valley and so um, we have to we have to voice our our um our outrage when it's warranted and we need to be able to articulate proactively like what kind of ecosystem do we want technology to be designed in? What do we want the social inputs to be? And yeah. I think we do that best as or in, in collective. So finding like your local just data organization and, and teaming up with them too.
0: I really like that because, you know, we're so used to seeing tech companies as being kind of like outside of society, you know, and and for the first 20 years, hey, they kind of were they were all insurgents and, and you know, these these weird small companies that were making, you know, yeah. really groundbreaking technology. And a lot of them had, you know, their don't be evil type slogans yeah. or, or they seemed chill and they seemed like. You know, they're the breath of fresh air coming through and yeah. and now these are the most massive companies in the country, right? that Absolutely. have the most entrenched advantage. And we need to start looking at them. I think you're right not as users who who are just like clicking a button, but yeah. no, we're members of a society. Yes, and those companies are also part of our society. yes. and what's what sort of relationship do we want to have with them? And how much power and what kinds of power are yes. we all right with them? Having
1: Exactly.
0: And, and it feels like that conversation is starting to happen. I mean, just seeing the antitrust hearings that were happening on yeah. Capitol Hill uh, a couple weeks ago was I mean, <laughs> that would have been unimaginable five years ago. And it was still uh, not quite enough, but maybe yeah. we're, start- yeah, Are we're you starting there. to see progress.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for me, it's been a dramatic shift just in the last few years in terms of us just kind of being like, oh yay the iphone 70 fill millions out like let's stand <laughs> in line overnight yeah. and like to being like people being much more like you know um um savvy and skeptical about all of all of the shiny things and so i think that um so i love the way that you described it in terms of recognizing that that little image the image of kind of like the little outliers innovators in their garage like now the silicon 6 these big companies not only are they like the biggest entities kind of monopolizing power and resources in this country but many of them have net worths that are larger than many countries in like yeah. the, in the world right yeah. and so like in terms of the power that they wield and monopolize we really are have to are culturally like under put them in a different sort of category of actor and understand what an influence that they're having on public life, but behind private doors, like their decisions have such a a huge um, impact. And so we got to completely shift up the regulatory infrastructure, the accountability, and and maybe even ask, like, do we want them to be that big? (laughs) Do we want them to continue monopolizing even as they fail to pay billions of dollars in taxes every year? So they say they're doing all this stuff in the, the name of the greater good, but they don't actually put their money where their their slogans are in terms of paying back into the public good. And so that's a that's like a basic one hundred and one thing we need to be demanding in terms of their their yeah. um, commitment.
0: And one of the things that really struck me from uh, Tim Wu's book, The Curse of Bigness, about, you know, uh, monopoly in the history of antitrust is that like the original idea when we talk about monopoly, and those issues, we talk about them in terms of money a lot. Oh, make, they make prices higher and they have too much money and, and you know, uh, inequality and things like that. But the real the original argument against them was about power, was that a single company having so much power We talk about standard oil or whatever. Right. That's so much power. They have more power than the government and then the de, than the democracy, which yeah. means that it's inherently anti-democratic. And we exactly. would say in America, we don't want a single person who's the CEO of this company yes. to have that much power. And that is happening again with these, you with look at Jeff Bezos, right. Um, and how much power he wields over so many different sectors. And that's the question we need to ask is not, it's not just economic. It's exactly. also power.
1: Exactly. And, and the last thing I would just add to that is that, you know, these companies and these individuals, they recognize that the the tide is turning. They recognize mm-hmm. the shift in, Public discourse. I mean, even if we just go to the Cambridge Analytica scandal and you yeah. know the 2016 Brexit and U.S. election, so part of their reaction, and this is something we have to be very wary about and and um, and keeping an, a vigilance around. Now they're trying to, what I think of as domesticate the critique. They're trying to create in house these methods of accountability and ethics and all of that, hiring people like in my field. Um, you know, Facebook created this board to oversee what it does. And and some of my colleagues rightly called it like Facebook's Supreme Court because they're trying to create like in-house what really needs to be independent and third yeah. party. And so they know that we we won't accept the status quo anymore, but we have to be careful about what their solutions are to it, which will just be them kind of creating their own mechanisms of, you know, at least at least giving sort of, you know, a face of ethics or we are trying to be publicly accountable. And we need to say enough with all of that, those slogans and all of that. We need something independent that's in the the power of people to be able to govern, not in-house in terms of these companies' um, attempts to do that.
0: Yeah, we need a voice, too. Like this is this is a society and a democracy and. So democratically, we should all have a voice in how our data is used and who's wielding power and and these issues. Uh, I think that's absolutely right. Well, I I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. This has been such an awesome, fun conversation.
1: My pleasure. It's great to talk to you, Adam. I hope uh, once I get another book done, I hope you invite me back. It's oh, my been gosh. Really I'd fun. love to. <laughs> I
0: learned, I've learned so much from talking to you. And I, I'm Thanks, sure Adam. another hour I would learn just as much. Thank you so much, Ruha.
1: My pleasure. Take care.
0: Well, thank you again to Ruha Benjamin for coming on the show. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. If you did, please leave us a rating or a review wherever you subscribe. I know, I know every podcast host says that. It really does help us out. Open up Apple Podcasts. Open up Spotify. Open up that Google podcast. Give us a five star and a review if you like the show. If you want to send me a comment about what you might like to see on the show in the future, why well, shoot an email to factually at adamconover.net and I will be happy to take a look. That is it for us this week on Factually. I want to thank our producers, Dana Wickens and Sam Roudman. Uh, our engineers, Ryan Connor and Brett Morris. Andrew WK for our theme song. You can find me at adamconover.net or at adamconover, wherever you get your social media. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week on Factually. Factually.